Hello, and welcome to the February 2019 episode of the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I'm Sarah Schaefer from Yale School of Medicine, Connecticut, USA, and I am here with Merid Parnas, Assistant Professor of Child Neurology and Director of the Pediatric Movement Disorders Clinic at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Today, Dr. Parnas and I are going to discuss his recent case series and review of the literature featured in the January 2019 issue of Movement Disorders Clinical Practice, entitled... Is benign hereditary chorea really benign? Brain-lung thyroid syndrome caused by NKX2-1 mutations. Dr. Parnas, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I would like to start with some background about benign hereditary chorea. Can you tell our listeners where this diagnosis originated and what our understanding of this disease was prior to the identification of a genetic etiology? Sure thing. So the first description of this condition was published in the New England Journal back in 1967. And those authors describe what seems to be a childhood onset, relatively mild, non-progressive generalized chorea that seems to have autosomal dominant inheritance and no other associated symptoms were noted. And that initial report included 15 affected family members across three generations of one family. And then in the 1970s and 1980s, there started to be some case reports of what seemed to be the same condition, but some of the affected family members had other symptoms like cognitive impairment or gait impairment or other involuntary movements like dystonia. And then in 2000, using linkage analysis of affected families, a region of the long arm of chromosome 14 was identified that was suspected to contain the gene that eventually was found. So that was um, determined in 2002 um, that they identified the gene itself. And it turned out that that responsible gene, NKX2-1, um, was already known to be involved in thyroid development and lung development, and it was also called thyroid transcription factor 1, TITF1. So that's very interesting. You mentioned that this gene, NKX2-1, was already known actually to be involved in a bunch of other parts of the body, the endocrine system, and the pulmonary system. And how did the discovery that this gene was implicated in benign hereditary chorea change the way that the neurology community looked at this disease? If I recall correctly, I think there had already been some studies of that gene of knockout mice that had already suggested that its absence was associated with not only lung and thyroid development problems, but abnormalities in brain structure differentiation problems. So the, the striatum and the ventral forebrain seems like they don't develop properly without proper expression of a working copy of that gene. So it kind of makes sense that this disorder can affect brain, lung, and thyroid. And um, like we uh, mentioned in the paper, so before we suggested that we switch over to this kind of more current trend of naming where we call it the gene name NKX2-1 related disorder, 
which is kind of a mouthful, we were kind of calling it BLT, brain lung thyroid disorder. So the heart of your paper talks about five interesting cases from four different families with this genetic mutation of NKX2-1. What inspired you to look at these cases? I think that at the end of the day, we're all interested in making an impact on patients' lives directly while we're in the clinic with them and indirectly. And the more patients that my colleagues and I saw who had this disorder, the sillier it seemed that it was thought of as benign and that we were calling it benign. And as I was writing this paper, I remember referencing this article from back in 2011 that was written by Elon Lewis and Mike Oaken talking about how we ought to remove the word benign from what had been called benign essential tremor. And that when I had first learned about this condition that we wrote about, that it was called benign hereditary chorea. And I remember learning about it and thinking about it as a relatively benign condition. And then the more patients I met, the more I, I think we started to think that we were doing people a disservice. And I don't know what it would be like to, I mean, if I could imagine one of these patients, like if I could remember, imagine being the parent of a child who has intellectual disability, who couldn't walk, who had medically refractory chorea, and who came in and saw a neurologist, and the neurologist said, oh, this condition, yeah, it's called benign hereditary chorea. But it just started, I think, to us to seem a little bit, you know, not, not the best way to refer to the disorder. That makes a lot of sense. It seems like there is a precedent out there since we don't really refer to ET as benign essential tremor anymore. Yeah, I think, you know, I um, went back and I read the article as we were getting together to write this article. And I think I agree with you. I think now that the trend is that we often will have a genetic diagnosis for many of these conditions in neurology, if we once we can wrap our arms around what the gene is and what it does, then we can expand the phenotype. And I think I, I'll bet more and more things are going to go this way. Things that we think of as being benign or relatively benign, you know, may have some other associated symptoms that aren't so great and that we don't really want. Definitely. So going the other direction, there is a huge range of variability between cases in terms of what types of disabilities they have, what, what parts of you know, their body are affected by this disorder. Have you been able to look at the different specific mutations in the NKX2-1 gene and draw any preliminary conclusions about how the specific mutations might lead to different phenotypes? I think it's a really good question. I don't think that anybody knows the answer to that question just yet. It seems that there's quite a good deal of genotype, phenotype variability, and it doesn't seem to be very predictable which pathogenic variants are going to cause which kinds of problems. One of the papers that we cite is a paper from 2014, and they describe all the known pathogenic variants at that time and some new ones that the, that group had discovered. So 77, I believe, in total. And it just seemed like the phenotypes were kind of all over the place. So it didn't really seem like it was very predictable. 
And along the same lines, I just wanted to bring up the fact that other genetic mutations have been associated with whatever our understanding initially uh, was of benign hereditary chorea. Can you talk about how those genetic mutations differ from what you've seen phenotypically in NKX2-1 patients? Sure. So there's a gene called ADCY5, and pathogenic variants in that gene also have been recognized to cause childhood onset generalized chorea. If I'm not mistaken, it was originally described as a facial myokymia gene. And then similarly, as that gene was identified and then further case reports were published, that phenotype was broadened. And now we know that it can cause these kinds of symptoms. And it can also cause other symptoms like dystonia and myoclonus um, and cognitive deficits. It's not associated with pulmonary pathology or thyroid pathology. So to that end, that's one thing that can be used to distinguish it from NKX2-1, but it is similar. And I have wondered, how do we know that that original case series was NKX2-1? It's all coming out of being called benign hereditary chorea, but I don't know that we actually know that for sure. You know, maybe, maybe that original description was ADCY5. I don't know. Or maybe it was something or, completely or maybe it was different. something else. And they were all, you know, yeah, maybe there's another milder, generalized chorea that's autosomal dominant that's out there, which is entirely possible too. Okay, so my next question is a more practical question for clinicians' information. Given the variability in mutations that have been noted with NKX2-1, and that includes intronic mutations that may not be identified by whole exome sequencing, and I know there were cases in your case series that were recognized by whole exome sequencing and others that were recognized by single gene sequencing, how would you advise a clinician to approach making a genetic diagnosis in a patient whom they suspect to have this disorder? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, I think the the earlier cases were found by whole exome, and then more recently that this phenotype's a little bit more obvious to us. We were confirming with single gene testing. And then in this large review of all these pathogenic variants, there were, I think, two that were found to be intronic in regions that were flanking the gene. So I think for testing for sequencing and, and array technology for copy number variation, I think between those two things, you'll find almost all of the cases. But there still is a possibility, it seems that you might miss some. And um, I think that the whole genome technology is probably on the horizon of becoming more in common practice and standard of care down the line. So I guess um, I guess you'd need those kinds of things to catch intronic segments. Yeah, I I think that as with all genetic testing questions, the answer to that is going to change markedly in the next couple of years, as you mentioned, but that is helpful for now. Um, one thing you did discuss in the paper is that some of the treatments that were tried for Korea in the five patients that you discussed were successful and some did not really work very well, if at all. Do you think that treatment should be approached differently for chorea in these patients than in, say, Huntington's disease or other choreiform disorders? So it seems to me that we so far are not very good at treating this disorder. 
I'd say that overall, the interventions that we use, the medications that we use to treat these five patients in our clinics had modest improvement at best. And I think that that's a generous assessment of how well we were able to help them improve. I think that overall, we were not able to help these patients very much in terms of their gait problems and chorea were, I think, were the most challenging. And one of the things that's interesting about this disorder is that it seems like from some of the young patients that had delays, had motor delays, they may have had motor delays that were out of proportion to the chorea or they may not even have had very much chorea at all or maybe not at all um, and still were not able to walk. So it's not entirely clear to me what it is that's driving the gross motor delay, gait disorder. I don't know whether it's low tone and ligamentous laxity or it's in some cases chorea or it's some other kind of problem, like separate problem, like a coordination problem or something. So what do you think will be important to look at going forward with regards to NKX2-1 related disorder? I think that uh, changing, I'm hoping that changing the name will at least do a little bit to be a little bit kinder and gentler and more sensitive. And maybe it might lead some people to include this in their differential when a patient is not presenting maybe classically. So so maybe we can help in that way. At least maybe we might cast, cast a broader net and have more diagnoses made and then that might, you know, help everyone, I guess, in the long run. But in terms of treatment, I think so far it's been very frustrating. All right. Well, do you have anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? No, I just want to say thanks for having me and uh, thanks on behalf of my colleagues. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it.